women's rights in the world. Welcome to the seventh episode in a series of podcasts of the Women's IP World. Today we have a twofer. We have Manuela Bruscolini and Nicole Gorlier, both with the Interpatent Law Firm in Italy. We've been traveling around the world virtually, talking to authors of the latest Women's IP World Annual, and this is our first stop in Italy. I'm your host, Michelle Katz, and I am the co-founding partner of the law firm, Advitum IP, which in Latin means intellectual property for life, and we are based out of the U.S. in Chicago. Me and my firm are hosting this podcast on behalf of Northens Media PR and Marketing Limited, based out of the U.K. in London. They are the publishers of the Women's IP World Annual and the Global IP Matrix magazine. Manuela, let's start with you. You've been practicing in the international IP area since 2001. What are some of the highlights that have led you to where you are today? Yeah, <laughs> that's a very interesting story. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle, for asking that. Um, actually, I don't have a legal background, so I didn't have a legal background when I started working in this field because I started working here as a translator and um, conference interpreter. And uh, so I discovered <laughs> this field because I was working with a primary law firm in Milan. And uh, this law firm was specializing in intellectual property. And uh, I decided at that time that that was my field, so that I wanted to become a trademark attorney. So I studied to become a trademark attorney, and uh, it was difficult to change, but uh, it was really nice, a very challenging uh, objective. So, and uh, that's why I'm here. I. Uh, I've been practicing in the intellectual property field now for over 20 years and uh, work is my passion. So I love what I do and I'm trying to do that uh, as best as possible. And I think that this can be perceived by clients and uh, that's it. So nothing very special, but uh, it was love at first sight. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful love story. 20 plus years, same with me. Uh, and so it's very interesting, your background, that you were uh, you know, in the translation field before coming to IP. It was really the translation career that introduced you to your to your love, to your passion. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I started translating. I discovered this field. Yeah. So what were you translating and in what languages? Well, uh, mainly from English, but also from German and from French, which are the other two foreign languages I studied at the university. And I've always been fond of foreign languages. Uh, it was my passion since I was uh, a child. So, <laughs> and, uh, 
but then I realized that I can use languages for doing something different from uh, uh, only studying languages, I mean. <laughs> and I saw from your bio, you actually, you speak multiple languages um, pretty fluently. So English, obviously, and Italian, yeah. but also German and, and French. French. Yes, that's true. I don't know if I can say that I speak fluently, but uh, yes, <laughs> that's true. Well, that, that's, that's wonderful. And I saw um, from Nicole, from your background, you also speak several languages. Can you share your background with us? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have a legal background. I studied law at the University of uh, Turin, uh, but I started a traineeship in criminal law not IP. So me working in the IP field was kind of a coincidence. Um, I was waiting for the results of the bar exam and um, I just left my CV at the Bar Association Council and a law firm that specializes in IP picked it up, called me and asked, you know, if I wanted to do an interview. And I was kind of terrified because I didn't really know much about this this field um, but then I went I saw and I actually liked it um, I, I realized it could be my my world I'm kind of a bookworm I don't like you know speaking in public so being a criminal lawyer wasn't really you know the the best job for me given my shyness in this in this sense. So I actually learned to like it and I'm very, very happy with what I do. Right. So in, in the trademark arena, in, unless you litigate in, you know, the, the local or, you know, federal courts, most of it's on paper or negotiations and yeah. uh, by phone. And uh, certainly you seem to be at ease in this podcast. So it's not that sort of shyness. It's more of that performance, right, in front of an audience. And certainly criminal lawyers, I mean, they're trial lawyers. Um, so they're up and presenting evidence and in front of the judge. Are, and I don't know, do you have juries there? Only for certain kinds of felonies, um, you know, like homicide, or that sort of things. There is a jury. It's mixed. Uh, there are some professional figures and uh, then like jurors in the U.S. sense. So, you know, population. Right. So, I mean, and that falls into criminal, right? So yeah. you you did a, a real 180. Yeah. Um, so that's very interesting. I, I actually did a criminal law clinic hmm. when I was in school. You, you got credit for it and my cases were going to the state and federal penitentiaries and trying to commute sentences and things like that. And I decided, you know, IP. I really yeah. like IP. <laughs> very, very different kind of subject matter. Yeah. Dealing with people's property instead of their live their lives, you know, a little yeah. bit a little bit different. Yeah. Um so the there are four of you from the firm that wrote the article when IP consultants become IT consultants. And um, we have both of you here as two of the four contributors. Can you tell us a little bit about the makeup of the firm? Like how many women are in the firm out of how many attorneys? 
Yeah, <laughs> I imagine that uh, it is not very common to have four authors and all of them are women, but uh, it's uh, something uh, pretty normal <laughs> in our firm because in our firm, uh, almost 90% of uh, trademark and patent attorneys are women, so it is not uh, that strange for us. And we are not a very big uh, firm. We are 25 people in total, which for Italy is an average size for an IP firm. And in our firm, uh, women are uh, very well represented. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, and that that is, especially in IP and in in the US the numbers are are changing, but I would still say that IP is male dominated here in the US, certainly on the on the patent side. Uh, so it's interesting to hear that your firm is uh, is a high majority are women actually, correct? Yes, correct, but uh, actually as you said in the patent field there are more men than women. So I was talking in general, uh, out of the total, there are more women than men, but uh, uh, mainly in the trademark field. Yes, that's mm -hmm. correct. It must be how we gravitated to each other, Manuela, when we met years ago at IP conferences, when we would attend them in person. You recall those days, right? Yes, um, I do. I do. My firm is also women owned. Yeah. Um, so yes. it, it, it's um, it's it's nice to see that there are firms uh, women owned and 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 employing other women. It's wonderful to see. So as to the article, really interesting. Um, of course, I read through it, and I hope our listeners will read through it. It's uh, page forty two, forty three in the Women's IP World Annual. Definitely check it out. Um, tell us how you have become IT consultants when, you know, you took a job of an IP consultant. Well, uh, maybe just start uh, and then Nicole, uh, if she wants, she can add uh, something about that. That would be great. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, we decided to tackle this uh, topic because it is something that uh, it is very common in our daily practice as trademark attorneys. We are all asked uh, to consider uh, the problem of evidence of use, and um, our client, uh, our clients ask us uh, how they can provide us with reliable evidence of use, because sometimes they are convinced of having a trademark. Which which is uh, well known, but then um, either it is not true, unfortunately, or they don't have enough evidence uh, of their use of the trademark. And uh, that's why we, we have to help them. And in particular, this concerns the search on the internet. So the use of uh, online evidence, which is one of the uh, most important um, issues in particular over the last uh, few years. Uh, of course, we are not alone uh, in this, uh, <laughs> in this uh, matter because also the EWIPO, the European Union Trademark and Design Office, decided to um, adopt a common practice exactly uh, on this matter. And they have uh, 
focused on the problem of online evidence and how to consider online evidence true, reliable and uh, genuine. At the time when we wrote the article, there was uh, a draft of the common practice uh, concentrating on this issue. And now the common practice uh, was published. It was published on the 31st of March of this year. And uh, in this common practice, it was established uh, um, what kind of online evidence uh, can be considered true, reliable, and uh, genuine. Um, the problem of online uh, uh, evidence is that websites, uh, websites are constantly updated. So uh, most of our clients ask us, how? Can we prove that uh, uh, my trademark is used today on the internet and the presence was also there, I don't know, one month ago or one year ago? As Manuela was saying, the, the problem of, uh, of the web is that it's constantly updated, so it changes every day, every minute, and there are no archives you know, that uh, allow us to see what happened in, in the past. Uh, the problem for IP consultants is that they intervene at a very late stage. I'm thinking about like oppositions uh, where you have to submit proof of use if requested and the client has no proof of its presence on, I don't know, social media. So you start to gather evidence, but you can gather evidence that it's dated on that day on which you go on the client's social media account. So how can you prove what happened before so this is uh the problem of timing is is um something we must we must tackle and also the the problem of how to prove that what the client provides you with is genuine uh the common practices uh give some tips and indicate some bull points that you have to respect when you submit this kind of evidence. I'm thinking about social media. That is obviously uh, one of the main platforms today and uh, a mean by which you can prove that you are popular and that your trademark is used and well-known. Um, the common practices, for example, say that uh, a mere screenshot of the page or of the post is not sufficient. Um, the owner of the trademark should submit proof of the date of creation of the account, for example, the number of followers, and if possible, also the gender of the followers, their territorial location, uh, the date of publication of the content that uh, one wants to wants to show, and. Um, also, for example, uh, the number of shares, of likes. So uh, it's quite complicated, but these common practices have, have helped. Um, we have found that there are other tools that clients can use in order to like stop the content of a page in time, like photograph it. Uh, our firm uses a lot of these tools uh, we're thinking about like softwares, forensic softwares, or blockchain, or wipe proof. So um, we we have the means now to help the client, but in helping them, we become IT IT consultants because we use these tools that ten years ago weren't even 
available. I think all we were using was the Wayback Machine. Um, I don't know if you've used that in your practice. No, we went to public notaries. Those were the only people who can like certify, uh, uh, I don't know, a page or document saying on this date at this time, uh, I, you know, certify that this is the content of the document of the. Of ah, the so it takes the client, right? Yeah. Like the owner of the website to essentially affirm, exactly. like in a declaration of sorts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That what to authenticate the document. Yeah. The, exactly. the web page. So, and we, we have, we use as investigations, we use, it's a, it's public website, the wayback.com site. And that's um, been really beneficial when you're doing investigations, because a lot of times what you're seeking is not what the website shows right now, right? Mm -hmm. But what it showed at a particular point in time, Mm -hmm. especially if you're arguing over who has the first use and what, and, and what constitutes first use. So you look back at the website back in time. And that's why the Wayback Machine is has been really helpful in, in some of my cases. Well, you mentioned um, forensic software, and I definitely want to talk about that. But we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue this discussion in a moment. We have now started the candidate research process for the Women's IP World Annual 2022. The Women's IP World Annual is the industry's number one intellectual property law publication that celebrates the work and achievements of professional women working in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. We are very proud to provide a platform for women working in intellectual property and innovation by shining a spotlight on their expertise and professional knowledge in their respective fields of operation in IP through engaging thought leadership content. Our annual publication has caught the eye of many IP associations from all over the world. More importantly, it has attracted a cocktail of awe-inspiring, knowledgeable women who are happy to share their professional and personal experiences of working in the industry. Our unbiased approach welcomes large to boutique law firms and female industry professionals at all levels to join our network of remarkable women from all over the world. The famous American journalist and women's rights advocate, Miss Sarah Margaret Fuller Ossoli, once said, If you have knowledge, let others shine their candles in it, and we couldn't agree more. Contact us today if you would like to nominate a candidate to join the Women's IP World Annual 2022, or if you would like to personally share your knowledge, inspire and be inspired. You can contact us on plus 44 0203 813 0457 or email us at info at womensipworld.com. For more information and to check out the latest issue of the Women's IP World Annual, please go to www.womensipworld.com. The Women's IP World Annual, the industry's leading publication that celebrates the work and achievements of women working in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. The Women's IP World Annual 2022 is sponsored by Patent Seekers in the United Kingdom and Lexorbis in India. Okay, we're back. And we left off, you, Nicole, had mentioned that your firm uses forensic software. Can you tell us a little bit about what it what it does? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, it's very um, easy to use, actually, in the sense that you just type the URL um, address. It's like if you were to go on Google and you type the address, and then you just ask this program 
to photograph the content of that page. And then this software uh, just issues a sort of certificate in which it states the date, the time, and the address that it has acquired. And so you have a page uh, in which all this data is, is reported. So you can prove, uh, you client can prove that that was, for example, your first use, but you could own also use it. For example, if you want to go to trial and you want to challenge a third party that has been using your trademark on a particular website, you can just, you know, acquire this page, certificate this page, and then you have proof for the judge uh, or the mediator uh, that said person was actually infringing your IP right. So it's it's very useful. And nowadays we see that uh, this type of activity can be carried out also by uh, by means of blockchain, and the blockchain is cheaper than the software. Uh, and also, uh, thanks to WIPO proof, our firm has been using both WIPO proof and blockchain a lot, uh, because we're, we're just, you know, advising clients to, to use it, to, you know, fix in time, a specific page, a specific document so that when needed, they already have the proof that is required. And so the, the certificate that's generated from the forensic software, is that does that now take the place of having the the prior procedure of having the the page certified with by with the client? Well, actually, yes. I mean, um, we're seeing that many uh, you know authorities that could be judges in civil or criminal um, hearings have accepted this because it, I mean, in there's a third party that you know authenticates the fact that this page was there at that time and uh, at that date. So it's, it's, it's strange because Italy lives on bureaucracy and it's old school. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and you don't find all judges uh, favorable in accepting this kind of documentation, but it's, it's very useful and actually it's um, way less expensive than, than the notaries. So clients uh, uh, agree, you know, with our, with our strategy and say, okay, if it costs less, we can do it because you know, notaries cost a lot in, in Italy. So. And the time consuming nature of having the client take the document to a notary, right? Exactly. So that really can interfere with someone's day. Mm -hmm. Could take half a day maybe to get this done. Yeah. And now lucky. basically you've got, yeah. And if you've got the software, then you just print it out and, and it's, and it's done right there. That's quite streamlined. And from what you're saying, sounds very contrary to the bureaucratic system. Yeah. You just if I can add something, please, um, this is a, um, an advantage also because uh, it speeds up uh, procedure. Sometimes we have to collect evidence as soon as possible because we have a very close deadline. And in that way, we can uh, obtain certification very quickly. 
and uh, in the past uh, with the notary uh, it, it took uh, some weeks at least uh, for our client to mm-hmm. come back to us with uh, certified documents so it has made our life easier definitely yeah it seems like a game changer in the industry to have this sort of thing i to authenticate documents is something that is routine and what in what's required here in the U.S. and and in many other places, including Italy and the EU practice. Um, I wanted to turn to the the different practices, if they are different. Are are the evidentiary rules different in EU practice than in the domestic practice in Italy? Well, um, actually, no, because uh, Italy is... uh, trying to adapt to the uh, EU practice. As I told you before, um, uh, the new common practice of the uh, repo, um, which concerns evidence, um, has established which kind of uh, types of uh, means uh, of evidence we can use. And uh, in Italy, too, Uh, We have had uh, recently an opposition case uh, which came to the final decision and uh, in this decision uh, it it was said that the mere printout of an Amazon page and uh, of a Debedam's page, so we are talking about commercial platform, e-commerce platforms, um, bearing the trademark, were not sufficient. So they were not considered sufficient evidence uh, because uh, um, they should uh, be corroborated by other elements. So there should be more evidence showing that the website had been visited and that the orders had um, actually been done uh, through the website. So also the examiners of our opposition division uh, is trying to follow the same path. So, mm-hmm. Well, and, and Nicole had mentioned, I thought it was interesting, um, and my question to both of you about getting the information about the genders and the number of followers as it relates to, you know, uh, I, I suppose that was a reference to social media where you see those type of uh, tallies. How does that impact or not use by having that information? Uh, well, it, it, it does impact a lot in the sense that obviously, you know, the, the, the web is accessible to anybody. So the mere presence on a social media doesn't mean that you are using your trademark on Instagram in the European Union because followers could come from France, Germany, Iran, Australia. So knowing, for example, the territorial location of, um, of, the, of the followers of that page could be very useful you know, to prove that actually mm. that page is visited by European Union um Members, members, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Or gender can be helpful according to the goods and services you need to prove use for. I'm thinking about like uh, uh, luxury, luxury shoes, um, shampoos, cosmetics. Uh, obviously, if you have a lot of women followers, it could be it could be helpful. Um, that hasn't happened to me specifically, but um, the territorial location 
was actually an issue for us in some proceedings. So it's very useful to know where people come from, where people who visit that specific page come from. Yeah. Very interesting. So what is, there's laws pending. What is the current status of the, of the law on reliable evidence uh, and do you think it will pass? That was referenced in in the article. Well, there's actually n- no law. I think that Italy is trying to, uh, you know, um, get up to speed with the European Union. Uh, online evidence is considered as a valuable mean of, of evidence, a valuable tool, but it has to be corroborated, as Manuela said, with other other elements. So slowly we're seeing that many um, examiners um, of, of our local trademark office are adapting, uh, um, you know, their view to what the Awipo, the Awipo stated and the common practices. It seems like it's going to have to, because I mean, there's businesses now that don't even have websites that are just relying on social media, social media, um, you know, like Instagram businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, right. And so the, the website is, is not always in existence in trying to prove use. Sometimes it's on other, other types of platforms other than websites. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where we're headed more and more, especially in light of um, the growing e-commerce you know, when we can't leave our homes, right? Which yeah. is, you know, right? Um, and I know Italy had some strict rules during the worst of it. Um, then, yeah, people are turning to online shopping more than ever. Yes. yes. I was um, the first one to do that during lockdown. So <laughs> I can vouch for that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, we've done we've done um, a few road road trips since this all began, and any time we see an Amazon truck, we say, "Oh, they found us! Oh, they they, yeah. find, they can find us anywhere." Um, I, I want to thank you both for being guests on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure uh, getting to know you and connecting with you. Um, to our listeners, please like, follow, share with your friends, but also feel free to send comments and questions. Check out this article. There's a lot more really interesting details contained in it. And I look forward to um, sharing more with you next time. Take good care. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Michelle. It was a real pleasure. Hope to see you again soon. You too. You too. You have been listening to the Women's IP World Annual Podcast, hosted by Michelle Katz from Advitum IP in Chicago, on behalf of Northern's Media PR and Marketing Limited.